This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. There are plenty of popular tourist destinations you can visit throughout the U.S., and sometimes finding a hidden gem can be the highlight of any great trip. The same is true in the nursing industry. Today, we're going to focus on the unknown Indian Health Service Program and why nursing in this community is so rewarding. Hey guys, I'm Adia Hansen. And I'm Corbin Smith. Together, we are going to explore the nursing profession. With exclusive interviews from nurses working in jobs you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Hey guys, welcome back to the College Handoff. Today's program features Emily Royce. She'll explain her unique role in supporting the Indian Health Service program in the state and how her nursing career influences Native Americans to make health a priority for them. We'll also wrap up the podcast season with graduate student Trissa Lyman discussing ways that critical access hospital nurses can support end-of-life care. Let's get started. We are here now with Emily Holland-Royce. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, came to BYU to go to nursing school. Um, and then I graduated in December of 2019. So we wanted to bring you onto the show today to talk about the Indian Health Service that you're working with. Could you explain a little bit about what its purpose is and its role? Yeah, um, the the purpose of the Urban Indian Center is to provide health services to members of federally recognized tribes. This grew out of a special government to government relationship that's called a government trust responsibility. That stemmed from the Indian Relocation Act of 1956, and the government started to encourage Native Americans to move off of the reservation into urban settings. And because of that government trust responsibility, tribes created urban Indian centers to extend health services and other services to tribal members not on the reservation, to people who are living in the city. Because at that time, there was only health services on the reservation. And so they expanded it and created urban Indian centers so that Native Americans living in the city, in the city could obtain those services. Yeah. So, so they'll come to us. um, uh, And we serve people along the whole Wasatch front. We used to be called the Indian walk-in center and we've served people, natives in this area for over 40 years. Um, And then To give a little more background, Indian Health Service is an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services, and they're responsible for for providing federal health services to American Indians and Alaska Natives. So an urban Indian center is the way that the government can fulfill that responsibility when tribal members do not live on, on the reservation. And Emily, what is your specific role in the department? Yeah, um, 
I, I'm the lead nurse here. I'm actually the only nurse. Before I got here, they didn't have a nurse. So I was hired to create the nursing position here. It is a relatively new healthcare clinic. We used to just do referrals where people would come and then we'd refer them out to different places for healthcare or dental care or mental health care. Now we can provide services here. So there was a nurse practitioner first. And then as they grew a little more, they're still um, in the still growing stages. They hired me to help create the nursing role. So the nurse practitioner and, I, practitioner and I work closely together to help establish this clinic. And that includes looking at how do we do labs, point of care labs? Um, how can we run those labs? Um, everything having to do with maybe pharmacy on site. What, what does that look like? Storing vaccines. So I do a lot of my job is also administrative. I'm on a lot of meetings such as the Infection Prevention and Safety Control Committee. Um, I'm also on a committee that helps look at how to improve our EHR to meet the needs of the clinic. Um, I'm in charge of ordering vaccine and making sure we have enough for the clinic and other supplies in general, as well as doing all of my COVID related duties. And in the future, once COVID hopefully dies down a bit, um, we can start expanding the nursing role here to include nursing visits where I can see clients and do things like birth control counseling or diabetes. Uh, counseling, stuff like that. So how do you work with individual tribes or families to make health a priority? Yeah, so um, there are eight federally recognized tribes in Utah. Um, at the beginning of the year, they have to list their top 10 priorities. And um, urban Indian centers need to fall within that top 10 list. So they have a duty to help us with caring for their population. Um, we meet every month um, with tribal leaders to discuss health issues and how to address them. And then um, I meet every week with um, Indian Health Service leaders in, in Phoenix, Arizona, that's where the headquarters are um, for our area. And we, we talk about the vaccine plan, um, details about the COVID vaccine rollout, um, upcoming news such as like recently the Janssen vaccine that just came out um, got approved. So we, we work on a weekly to monthly basis to help meet the needs of the population. Now looking back a little bit, how has your BYU nursing experience influenced you in your current role? I think of how much my religious and spiritual beliefs affect my daily choices. Um, though, though I do not share the same, the same religion or spiritual practices as um, Native Americans, I still feel a deep connection with them because I, under, I, I understand how important spirituality is in my life. And that helps me understand how important it is to them. 
and how important it is to uh, use spiritually competent care on a daily basis. They res- I've noticed that um, Native Americans appreciate when we go out of the way, out of our way here to provide spiritual care. Um, and that's not necessarily through a religious leader. Um, it's through little acts. For example, when they come to get their COVID vaccine, we give them stage at the end um, after they've been vaccinated. Um, and sage is used to help heal, protect, and defend against disease. And then burning sage, that's called smudging, um, it brings healing to you. It also kind of brings a blessing. Um, if you if you smudge or burn the sage, um, breathing in that smoke, it can clean the air and, and provide blessing to you and others in that building. So those are some of the things that we do to help provide that spiritual and cultural aspect of care to our patients. Okay. Okay. And what are some of the challenges facing Native Americans when it comes to their, their physical health? Yeah. Um, American Indians have a history of health inequity. Um, in the United States Census Bureau in 2015, 28.3% of American Indians live in poverty. That's the highest rate among any other race. Um, they also suffer disproportionately from other health problems such as um, uh, like sudden infant death syndrome, substance use, diabetes, liver disease, hepatitis. They also have a high prevalence and risk factors for mental health and suicide. And Emily, is there a reason that you love your job just so much? I... I really like my job because I feel like every nurse makes a huge difference. I feel like I'm able to create a relationship with the clients that come here um, because it's a family practice clinic. I see the same patients and talk to the same patients over the course of months. And, and we start to know each other, whereas in the hospital, it's very, you, you see one person and then they're gone a few days later. So this one is much more of a long-term relationship. I also really enjoy learning about the cultural um, aspect of care here. It, culture is very important as well as spirituality. And I enjoy learning that and trying to find ways to apply that to my practice. If somebody, a student or a listener was interested in getting involved with the Indian Health Service through volunteering or service, how could they do that? There is volunteer roles on our website. Um, you, I'm not sure that the website title. You can type in Urban Indian Center, Salt Lake, and, it, and it'll pop up. I know there's a volunteer um, section. Um, I, I know that we do COVID vaccine clinics here and the University of Utah student nurses help us out with that. Um, I want to bring up bringing BYU students to help us so that my school can help too <laughs> if they wanted. But um, there are there are opportunities for service, especially now with the COVID vaccine coming out. And also with that in mind, if someone listening wants to register at the center or needs help, how would they do that? Okay. 
I just want to let um, anyone who is Native American, um, they can register at the center. Um, they don't have to be full Native American, but just um, just Native American or Alaskan Native. They can en and register at the center, and then they can receive health care free. Um, they we have mental health counseling here, free. And we do community events. We had a virtual powwow two weeks ago. So if, if students at BYU need a place to find support, find health care that's affordable and free for them, I highly recommend coming here. It's, it's, it's farther away since they might live in Provo, but um, we do offer services to help them as well as the COVID vaccine. And last but not least, Emily, if somebody wants to know more about your job, how can they reach you? Yeah, um, it'd be emily.holland, that's E-M-I-L-Y dot H-O-L-L-A-N-D-R at gmail.com. Thank you for sharing that, Emily. We appreciate so much you coming onto the show today to talk to us about the resources available to Native Americans. That's such an important conversation to have. Okay, thank you. A huge shout out to the BYU nursing students that have helped with the university COVID-19 testing this semester. 288 nursing shifts were filled and over 26,000 BYU students were tested. What a great way to demonstrate compassion and your nursing skills on campus while also practicing the healer's art. We're here today with grad student Trissa Lyman. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm originally from Texas and super excited to be here at BYU. This is my second year and uh, yeah, it's been great. So today we want to talk to you about your recent research with Dr. Renee Beckstrand. Could you tell us a little bit about what you studied and how you went about collecting the data for your research? So I'm working alongside Dr. Renee Beckstrand and her, she's an expert in end-of-life care study. Um, our study entails critical access hospitals. And what we wanted to know is how critical access hospital nurses perceive obstacles to providing end-of-life care. So a lot of studies have been done to show nurses' perceptions of end-of-life care in urban hospitals. However, critical access hospitals, which are located in geographically isolated areas, there have been no studies. Um, so what we did is we sent out a questionnaire to a nationally random sample of critical access hospital nurses and asked them about obstacles that they face while providing end-of-life care. And so when we think about a critical access hospital, it looks quite different than an urban hospital. So critical access hospitals were developed in 1997 by the Balanced Budget Act. Um, and the purpose of this critical access hospital status is to help rural hospitals stay afloat. The critical access hospitals receive federal grants and Medicare reimbursements at 101% for patient services. Okay, so what qualifies as a critical access hospital? For a rural hospital to be eligible for critical access hospital status, they must be located at least 35 miles away from another hospital facility. They also must have no more than 25 acute care beds and they must have a 24-7 operating emergency department. 
In addition to being located in rural areas, many critical access hospitals experience a shortage or limited access to specialized physicians. In fact, in some critical access hospitals, um, nurses care for patients until an on-call physician or nurse practitioner arrives to the facility. Also, um, critical access hospitals have limited specialized medical equipment. So things that you would see in an urban hospital, such as a mechanical ventilator, which helps assist patients with breathing, you might not see in a critical access hospital. Yeah, that's so interesting. And what were the results of the study? What did you guys find? Um, so our results were interesting into what we found. So critical access hospital nurses perceived family attitudes and behaviors as being the most dominant obstacles within end-of-life care. Um, so seven out of 10 of the top largest obstacles were related to family behaviors and attitudes. And that's something we've seen in prior studies that have been done in urban hospitals, that families, um, you know, it, it makes sense because this is often a new phenomenon for families. Whereas for nurses, we, we care for dying patients quite often. Um, so, so families are thrown into the medical world and they're expected to make really tough decisions. And sometimes these decisions and the stress of the dying process can evoke strong emotions within family members, um, which often leaves nurses to deal with angry and distraught family members while simultaneously trying to care for dying patients. Um, also, um, confusion for families is quite, um, quite prevalent as well. Uh, families not understanding what life-saving measures really means. Um, also, um, intra-family disagreements as to whether or not to continue life support. And these are, these are things that critical access hospital nurses are saying are large obstacles for them in providing end-of-life care. So when we look at the items that we added to our study um, to ask specifically for critical access hospitals, um, we were wanting to know, does this, these barriers that critical access hospitals face with, with a lack of access to, to specialists as well as limited resources, is this something that impedes them and providing quality end-of-life care. And it was very surprising to hear that no, that, that these items did not rank within the top 10 largest obstacles that they face. So why do you think that these hospitals don't see a lack of resources as one of the top problems that they face? So and a possible explanation as to why critical access hospital nurses don't perceive um, limited resources as being a large obstacle in providing end-of-life care is that they have adapted to their environment. They're used to, to making do with, with limited medical equipment and without having uh, a medical provider there at the bedside with them. Um, and therefore, they've, they, they, they became expert, expert generalists. Yeah, I love that so much. Nurses really have to be so adaptable. So what's the biggest implication that the nursing community can take from your research? So this study is extremely important for nurses and for medical providers in general. 
um, we need to know what critical access hospitals are experiencing um, out in their rural communities. We need to know what obstacles they face and especially in providing end of life care. Um, the, the dying process is such a sacred experience, especially for families and loved ones. And a nurse can make all the difference if they have the tools necessary to help families navigate the dying process. Um, so, so we recommend um, further research for, for identifying effective education for families with the dying process. Um, also helping, helping nurses and, and providers to be able to, to better teach and educate the family as they help them make end-of-life care decisions. Um, this could potentially um, help families have, have a smoother transition in their decision-making. And also it would help families to be able to to have a positive end of life treatment plan decision. So anything we could do to help families um, through their grieving process and, and make these really tough decisions as to how to proceed with end of life care. Um, it can make a world of difference for the families and also for nurses providing care to patients through the dying process. Okay, so now that the study is finished, how do you plan on telling people about it? Are you wanting to publish it somewhere? Maybe present at a conference? Yeah, that would be great. Um, so yes, pub- publications, um, very important. And that's, that's always the goal. We hope to be published for sure. Um, and Dr. Renee Vextrin, she's been published so many times. I, I'm sure um, that this time won't be any different. Um, so yeah, yeah. So the goal is to definitely publish um, this article and, and hopefully disseminate it to, to other nurses and, and help um, improve end-of-life care services that we provide as, as medical professionals. So to wrap up, is this an area you'd want to pursue after you graduate? Oh, absolutely. I really enjoy um, end-of-life care. Uh, as an intensive care unit nurse, um, the intensive care unit has the highest mortality rate in hospital settings, and that's because they care for critically ill patients. So as a nurse um, and working in the intensive care unit, that has been one of the most rewarding aspects of of my career as a nurse has been working with with patients that are passing on and helping family to grieve and and make those decisions. That has been one of the most rewarding parts of my of my career. so i I would love to to continue with with being a part of that. And it's, it's just a great special experience for sure. Well, Trissa, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So Adia, while I was doing this interview with Emily, it made me think about a specific point from a class that I'm taking this semester. It's sociology of race and ethnicity, which for everybody listening, I would highly, highly recommend for next school year. Sociology 323 from Dr. Rue or Dr. Gabriel. But anyway, I, di- I diverge. The point that I've been thinking about in class is that it seems like an overarching theme is that we as a society too often put minority groups into this huge like conglomerate group. Mm-hmm. And we know that everybody is different. All these cultures are different, even individuals, even going more specific, everybody's different. And we need to be treated 
differently because we think differently. We believe different things. We have different backgrounds. I think that's what nursing in general is and what it should, what it should be. Right. Yeah, totally. I completely agree. I think that in nursing school, we talk a lot about how you individualize care for each patient. And the same goes for a certain culture or a certain population group of people. You really have to be culturally sensitive to give people the best care possible and to make them feel welcome and cared for too, which is also a very important part of nursing. Exactly. You can't love a whole group. It's hard because it's a group, but you can love an individual. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really strong sentiment. But guys, we have reached the end of another episode. We will not be back next week. We will be back in the fall in September. So we hope that you guys have an incredible summer break, doing whatever you're going to do, helping as many people as you can. And instead of seeing you next week, we will see you next fall. See ya. See y'all. See y'all.